Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of the highlight sessions of the 2021 event, which featured more than 150 storytellers and was explored through our theme, Mulat Sarira, self-reflection. So please settle in and let the magic of our 18th year continue. Join us in a festival that promises to be extraordinary because Bali is extraordinary. everyone. Welcome to Ubud Writers and Readers Festival 2021. This year, the festival returns with the theme Mulat Sarira, self-reflection, which is drawn from a Balinese Hindu philosophy. From the 8th to the 17th of October, we will explore the meaning of self-reflection, cultural introspection and human rights, examining who we are, what unites and divides us and what drives our actions. Welcome to today's In Conversation with Dr. Catherine Heyman about her fabulous memoir, Fury, which was published in May this year. My name is Nicole Abadie. I'm an Australian books writer, festival interviewer, and host of the books podcast, Books, Books, Books. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today. Before we start, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our writer, Catherine Heyman. Catherine is a novelist, essayist, screenwriter, and teacher. She has written six novels. The first was The Breaking, published in 1997, and the most recent was Storm and Grace, published in, to critical acclaim in 2017. Her work has won literary awards in Australia and internationally. Catherine was the founding director of the fiction program for the Faber Writing Academy and is currently the director of the Australian Writers' Mentoring Program. She's also an honorary professor of humanities at the University of Newcastle. There have been a lot of fabulous reviews of Catherine's memoir, Fury, which we're talking about today. This was one of my favourites from The Independent in London. In this book about class and poverty and the tenacity it takes to overcome trauma, the writing is sharp and beautiful, the insights unflinching and brave. Catherine, it's really wonderful to be here in conversation with you. Thanks, Nicole. It's good to be here. I'm going to ask you to start by telling us what Fury is about. Well, Fury is a memoir of a year in my life after a uh, after a series of traumas that culminated in a uh, traumatic sexual assault trial. When after that, I faced with the need to reinvent myself, to reinvent my life. I ran away, if you like, from my life and um, found myself 
by working as a deckhand on a trawler in the Timor Sea. So really it's about, it's about what might happen when there's nowhere left to fall. It's about putting a life together. It's about recovering. Um, and you know, it's, it is about those things that you mentioned. It's about class, it's about trauma, it's about recovery, uh, it's about joy. Um, but it's also, it is about the consolations of work as well and the consolations of reading and, mm. and how those things saved me. Mm. Catherine, the events that you write about took place when you were about 20 or 21, but you weaved through that story quite a lot of background about your childhood. Could you tell us about that? Well, I'll answer in two ways. So there's one one question in, implied there is what I do with that in the book. Um, and I'll answer that first. So one of the things that happened, you know, when I've talked about this experience of being adrift, both psychologically and physically on, on the Timor Sea, that that being adrift was the thing that saved me. It was the thing that made me and made me able to create a new self and a new life from real scraps. And part of that was that in that being adrift, memories that I had been unable to look at, been unable to um, address, swam up, churned up, like the, the, the muck being churned up from the bottom of the ocean, which is what happens when you're trawling. So that's why throughout the book I have a kind of a series of memories that drop in because I was trying to sort of mimic what actually happened on the, on the boat. I think part of what happens in that time of your life generally is a reassessing of, of your life and, and a kind of claiming your own story generally. And I think when your story has had trauma in it or has had reasons in it for you to perhaps not feel that you owned your version of your story, then that time becomes even more important. So the reason that those memories um, swam up, if you like, with it, there, there were quite a lot of memories of trauma, not just of trauma, there was a lot of memories of joy as well, you know, there was plenty of laughter. But um, I was, when I kind of embarked on writing Fury, I knew that I wanted to, to write about power. I knew that I wanted to write about claiming power for oneself when, when none has been granted. Um, so to do that, I really needed to kind of layer for the reader a sense of, look, this isn't just at 20, there is no power. This is, this is the result of growing up female, growing up female and poor, growing up in a kind of context where both my class, my gender, my, um, my intergenerational story and the, the lack of a number of things in that intergenerational story in a culture and a country which is, whether it owns it or not, actually obsessed with class and you know all of those things meant that my starting point was was um was kind of zero um i don't mean literally zero i mean neutral in terms of narrative 
so it, so it was really important I felt that I kind of layered some of those memories and in particular that sense of look when you grow up in a sense my starting point was just growing up female when you grow up female you know there is a kind of bombardment of a certain kind of experience there is a bombardment of having of finding yourself assessed <laughs> or um you know being at in terms of growing up female finding yourself the recipient as i've said in the past of unwill unwelcome sexual advances um but also growing up in a context where you are uh assessed um on the basis of things that actually have little or nothing to do with you um there, there was violence in your childhood wasn't there your father mm. was a policeman but he was violent towards mm. your mother their marriage ended when you were quite young and then you were living with your mum and then eventually with mum and her new husband. Your mum was working as a nurse's aide. Your mum married a man who you you didn't, sorry, there wasn't really a home for you there with them. So when you were in your mid-teens, I think you had to leave home and, and to live mm -hmm. in a hostel for your last few years of school. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so um I had grown up in a context where there was, as you said, there was, you know, there was a lot of violence. Um, and uh, <laughs> and at, at 15, when my, my mother um, remarried, uh, I, I lived in a few different, <laughs> sort of drifted about. And then in my final years of school, I lived in a, in a hostel. Um, so, and I didn't want to kind of, I really, really had no interest in writing what has been called a misery memoir. You know, there was a sort of spate of misery memoirs which which become almost competitive in the poor me, you know. Um, I have a great deal of sympathy for that younger self and in no way do I think it was easy. But, but I kind of wanted this to be a story about joy and possibility um, and in order, you know, it's a, it's a tension, isn't it? Because in order really to inhabit joy and possibility, you have to know the shadows, you have mm. to know the depths. So those things had to be there together. But I was so wary of um, anything that sort of had a, a, a uh, when I was editing it, I remember this kind of guideline that I had for myself, which was anything that has an element of self-pity mm. has to go. And there were a couple of lines that, you know, as I was writing it, that had a sort of poor me to it. And they stayed for, you know, pretty late. And then I had to go, you know, no. Everyone in that story, everyone in that story of, you know, the stepfather, who was an alcoholic and and you know emotionally violent and 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 violent too the father with his own violence the mother with her own story of need and desperation and poverty really quite extreme poverty actually all of those people also have their story that means that what they what they brought to my story <laughs> you know it, i didn't want to be um it's not their story. I was really clear that, you know, they could write their own memoir if they are the ones who are alive. Um, but 
So I wanted to be respectful of that while also being respectful towards my younger self, you know. So I don't know if that's answering your question. (laughs) Look, it absolutely does. And I think it just sets the scene for what happened. And one of the things we're going to come to talk about is what happened to you and the extent to which class was a factor in the way you were treated by the police, by the judicial system and generally. So I think it is important just to understand that, that background. One of the really beautiful strains through the books that you've adverted to is the role that books played in your life. You said uh, in your book, the only place I'd ever found home was among books and words and learning. Your parents weren't readers. Who introduced you to books and how did they become so important to you growing up? Well, I would say, first of all, when I was very little, and I I think I allude to this ever so briefly, it's maybe a line in the book, there's a children's show which is still on television now called Play School, and um, Play School has, you know, story time, as many little children's shows do. So, oh, my goodness, those, those shows are so important for children who grow up in context where um, where reading is not part of their environment because they're, they're receiving story. And I, well, I remember the kind of the, the sound of the book pages turning. <gasps> oh, divine. So I think I already had that sort of hunger. When I started um, kindergarten, had a, a lovely teacher and um, whose name I think I haven't changed in the book. <laughs> I think that, that really was her name. Miss Noble, yeah, I think. Oh, Miss Noble. Oh, Miss Pitt comes later. There are a few teachers who were really important, as teachers are. So Miss Noble um, saw that I was very hungry for story and she saw that because they we had in the classroom these um, story cards. I think they were called SRC cards or is that what they were called SRC? I think it was SRA. You and I are similar. SRA. I grew up with SRA cards. Yes. Yes. And my husband who grew up in a very different, um, my husband's British and he grew up in a very different class context to me and he remembers these little books too, so that these little cards. So these cards had stories in them and comprehension tests at the end and I was obsessed by them and would stay in (laughs) at recess so that I could read them. So this teacher saw that and I was a very rapid learner, a very hungry learner. And she started sending little packages of books home for me to read. So she really nurtured this hunger. A little while after that, I discovered that in my local charity shop for, for you know, the price of a few cashed in soft drink bottles, I could um, buy these boxes of books. So I would get these big boxes of old books, just that, that clearly the the, um, the people who worked in the charity shops had just sort of thrown in randomly. And again, even as I say it, I can remember the smell of these old books. You know, they were kind of 1930s books, 1940s. You know, they were they were really old often, some of them a little more recent. But those books became my uh, my template for possibility. You know, I would read these books hungrily, um, many of them way outside of my kind of age-appropriate 
level, but many of them, a lot of boarding school books, <laughs> a lot of sort of English boarding school books. And I would sort of read them and every time there was a, a disaster or an impossibility, which of course, let's be honest, story is so often instruction for how do you make yourself stronger? How do you make yourself better? How do you overcome impossibility and make it possibility? So I was absorbing all of that by this reading and I would, I would read about an event and then I would sort of lie in my little bed and I would think, okay, so if I am ever left alone at a train station in another country, this is my plan. So I was kind of constantly mapping these sort of series of whatever the disaster that might befall me, you know, abandoned on an island on my own. This I've got my plan figured out, you know, um, <laughs> fallen was, out of an aeroplane with a bunch of boys. I've got my plan. <laughs> there was something else though, wasn't there, Catherine, that you keep coming back to that, um, I think it's a, a really strong theme in the book, and that is the idea of books as an escape for you. Not only were they a refuge, they were the only home that you had, but they also helped you to formulate an escape plan. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, absolutely. Both um, a psychological and, and, as I said, a kind of physical escape, that sort of mapping my way out. So as I was doing that as a as a young child, as I was kind of, really physically sort of rehearsing whatever disaster might befall that that I've borrowed from these books, I will have my own plan, my escape plan. But of course, what was also happening is that, and this is part of what books are for, what was also happening is that in doing that, I was kind of building a particular sort of psychology. I was building a psychology that was teaching my own self, whatever befalls you, you can map your way out. You can find an escape hatch. Mm. And if there isn't one, you can build it. Okay. So I can't, that's what reading does, I think, for many people. It really did it for me. I wasn't, I'm articulating that now. I didn't articulate that obviously for myself then, but now I understand that that's what was happening almost at a cellular level, I would say, that as I'm reading, as a young child, you know, when you, this is what story does this, you rehearse life's thrills and dangers and doing that forms your, you know, neural pathways. It, it, it fires up your synapses and it, it kind of builds a particular view of the world. So I think that that meant that when it came to a time in my life that I needed to find an escape, mm. I had a kind of, I built a physical instinct. Okay, you can build an mm. escape hatch. Mm. You might not be able to see it, but you know that if you can't see it, it's just because you haven't found it yet or you haven't built it yet. And we're, that's what we're going to come to talk about. But that that's what you mean, isn't it, when you speak in such a real sense of how books saved your life. You experienced trauma. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. You experienced trauma and your response to that was to head to Darwin and start to make a new life. Let's stop and pause for a moment and talk a little bit about that trauma. I want to emphasise to everybody listening that this is not a book about sexual assault, nor, as Catherine has said, is it a misery memoir. This is a beautiful, joyous, 
celebration of a book that's about resilience and reinvention and joy. But before we get to that, we have to just quickly explain to you what the trauma was. Catherine, could you just tell us what happened to you when you were 20? What was the traumatic event that happened to you? Yeah. So I, I guess I, could, I would, I, I think we could say the, the culminating traumatic event, mm -hmm. because I think mm -hmm. up until that point, I'd been kind of drifting, you know, with a series of sort of minor failures. <laughs> so, so I was playing life in a pretty low key, a pretty dull key. Um, and I guess I would say that culminated in uh, an event at that time when I went to a party and um, I drank a lot of wine uh, and a lot of spirits. I drank a lot at that party, as many 20-year-olds do. And when I left the party, I... I didn't have very much money. I was kind of scrappling bits of money together from different waitressing jobs. But I had enough to kind of pull enough together to say, I, to, to understand I'm drunk, I need to get a taxi. And you were on so, your own because the girlfriend you'd gone to the party with didn't want to leave at the same time that you did. Didn't so want to leave at the same you. time. So in my in my family story, you know, it's always been the thing that I've really hammered into my kids. You never desert your friends at a party. <laughs> I think they've always thought, why does she go on about it so much? But that, yeah, absolutely. My 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 friend who I'd left with, who had gone to the party with, wasn't ready to leave. I was. So I I went outside and saw a taxi coming. Saw the light of the taxi on top of the roof as we have in Australia and um, and I hailed the taxi down. So it was a taxi off the street as opposed to a taxi that you phoned for and the taxi driver, and I was assaulted, sexually assaulted by the taxi driver. Um, when I, when I, I was picked up by another taxi so I um, the taxi had pulled over. I'm not going to go into the details of the assault, but I managed to escape um, and, you know, was a bit bloodied and messed up and another taxi fortuitously um, picked me up. I say fortuitously now, I think for some years I might not have because that other taxi driver, first of all, was an incredibly kind and lovely man. Um but secondly, because he was a taxi driver, he said, you need to report this mm. because it gives us, you know, we don't want uh, a taxi driver who is a rapist driving about. So mm. really I, I w wanted to just go home. But he took me to the police station mm. and 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 I went into the, the police station and and I think this is where what you alluded to earlier, that I was not a middle-class girl, mm. um, you know. Uh, that said, you know, I mean, I was, I was, um, I, I am not a person of colour, so I, I can 100%, you know, with no degree of doubt, uh, say that it would have been a lot worse if you know with that extra layer so I'm really aware that 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 
even with all that I'm talking about, that there's there's built into that a layer of privilege that, you know, that, that is almost by definition um, invisible. But I was very drunk and um, and the yeah, the police officers, uh, I think the kindest way to, to put it would be to say that they didn't take it seriously. They were very dismissive of, of what how I was presenting and what I was um, what I was claiming. Um, I mean, again, we won't go into the detail of it, but the note I've just got is the first thing that the, the older male policeman says when you say you've been raped is, I don't know about that girly, but you've certainly been drinking. I think that gives some flavour of the response you got from the police. Absolutely. And it's funny, that line, that's, you know, of course, some of this is a memoir, it's a literary memoir, therefore it is a reconstruction. And, you know, I use a lot of dialogue. And of course, inevitably, when I'm using dialogue, this is implicit in memoir, there is some kind of look, I think it was like this, mm. you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to structure it in this way. That line I you know as even as you say it now I can hear his voice I can see his face mm. you know that police officer didn't need much recalling he was he was there and that line was <laughs> was there for a long time yeah I, I'd and quite it, like to go back and find him <laughs> I think all of us mm. feel like that when we mm. read that account <laughs> Again, we're not going to go into the details, but suffice it to say there's a criminal trial. You're made to feel as if you're the one on trial and ultimately the taxi driver is acquitted. You are devastated and you say in your book this about what the trial did to you. You said, it marked the end of this version of myself. It was as though I'd burned or drowned. What did you mean by that? Well... What what I'd burned or drowned was that version of myself. So what that meant was that I was free to create another version of myself. Now, I didn't know that at the time. What I knew was I'd been hanging on to this one possibility and there is, I would say, still in sexual assault trials, a story around uh, the right kind of victim mm. or a story around the victim, even that word generally, but certainly a kind of a story around innocence and, mm. and guilt. Um, it's a story that still gets perpetrated. So what, what I remember feeling is if... If, if he is acquitted, then the implication is that I am guilty, mm. that I am to be, I, I am worthy of shame um, and that I'm not the right kind of girl. I'm not the innocent kind of girl. So that felt like an enormous and devastating loss. But it also meant that it was a very clear line to me. That was the moment, if you like, in those story terms where I was able to have a deep and profound sense of, okay, you are now in that bit of the story where all is lost, where there is nothing but disaster. So this is the bit in the story where you just have to look for the escape hatch or make it. So that retrospectively, 
that moment became, again, in story terms, an inciting incident, the inciting incident in some ways of a life that became uh, a rich and lovely life that is not the life I was on track for before that event. I'm certainly not going to express gratitude for that event, but that's that's how I used it. So, but I mean, other... I'm sorry. Let, let's come back now to that issue of mm. class. To what extent do you think that class was a factor in the way that you were treated by the police and by the judicial system, but by which I mean, I suppose, the system as a whole, the criminal justice system, the barrister who cross-examined you, the defence barrister? What do you think about that? Oh, I think class absolutely um, was a part of that. I, I was... Um, now, that said, I don't have a control group. I don't have a version of me which which was, you know, more middle class. And when I say middle class, I'm thinking, well, how were the markers of that shown? You know, I didn't, I, I, I <laughs> people have often assumed uh, many things about me, but they've often assumed that I, I grew up much posher than I did. Um, but they've, after Fury, people have assumed that I acquired a sort of more middle class accent, for instance, post my education. This is the always the way I spoke. It's the way my mother spoke, you know, the, this, and which I'm saying that because <laughs> when people have assumed things about class that, that are often wrong. Um, so how was it presented? I mean, I think it was um, presented in the, the, the sense that I was, um, my life was one of poverty, you know, I was scratching a living together from bits of waitressing. I wasn't, um, I hadn't gone to a private school. I hadn't, I didn't have any of those kind of um, evidences, if you like, of, uh, of that kind of support and structure around you. Mm. So, and I think obviously my gender, my, my, um, the fact that I was a young female was, you know, going back to the the actual crime uh, at the centre of it. That was clearly a bigger issue. But I think absolutely, if I'd been um, uh, a more middle class girl, I think perhaps I I don't know that the acquittal would have been different. I don't know that the story would have been different. I think it may have been. I think it may have been. I think certainly the brutality with which I was treated in that um, during that trial, I think that would have been very different. And one point that you make, which was would have been a marker on display to everybody, and you note this, which I found absolutely devastating, was that you were alone in that courtroom. You didn't have your mother with you. You didn't have a sister with you. You didn't have a friend with you. And looking back in retrospect, you feel that that may have counted against you. I think at the time I felt that it counted against mm. me, you know, uh, well, not, I mean, you know, immediately afterwards I did feel that that had counted against me. And, again, I'm not sure that that in itself is a marker of class. I mean, you know, I, uh, when I think of my um, family of origin and the extended family of origin around that those people who are, um, you know, good working class people, you know, they, they come in a group. <laughs> they, they come in a pack, actually. Um, so I don't, 
I don't think that that in its, I think that was read as a, as a marker of, you know, class and my general um, unsuitability for, for anything, I think. But I don't think that it really was a marker of class. I think it was a marker of my, my discomfort with, with a kind of story that I was in that I didn't want to be in and that included a story about class because I would not let anyone come with me is the other mm, bit of that story. Your choice. So let's move now to how you responded, not in the way everybody would, but in the way you did, no doubt informed by your reading and your plans about escape. You decided to head to Darwin and you made it there. I won't, again, won't talk too much about it, but there are many stories along the way. You did that by hitchhiking. When you get to Darwin, you meet someone called Carl. He offers you a job as a cook on the Ocean Thief, a fishing trawler heading for the Timor Sea with a promise that for four months' work you'll earn $10,000, which must have sounded pretty good, still sounds pretty good to me. Um, you seize the opportunity to start again and you resolve, you say, to burn all that I had been, all that I had been told I was, all that I'd been born to, and to become my other self, the self I knew I could be. Did you succeed in that period you spent on the Ocean Thief in reinventing yourself in the way that you hoped to? And if so, how? Oh, <laughs> uh, big question. Um, well, yes, 100% I did. But as is the case with story, um, it didn't look the way I thought it might look. It wasn't the story that I thought was going to be delivered up to me. What I thought when I heard that figure, and I will say that one of the kind of one of the the things that was driving me was just this like a a physical um, response. I just have to get away. I have to go as far away as I can. And you wanted and to go to so England, a, didn't you? I find my metal absolutely yeah. because you know that I knew that that because of all my boarding school books that yeah. you know if I could just get there then then I would become um, you know Jancy of the upper six. It was clearly just waiting for me. That kind of was as it turned out. But uh, you know, it, my my absolute determination to believe that that was waiting for me. But there was a, the little obstacle that I had no money, no no means, no no kind of avenue to to step into this thing that would would change everything so yes Carl um was a was a first mate on a trawler remarkable young guy um and when he said you know you you can make this this what did seem like a huge life-changing miraculous figure um there was not a question for me and I I was in that state I'm waiting for the next door to open. I'm looking for the escape hatch. I've embarked in the story and 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 I'm I'm ready to change everything. And you know, I I didn't necessarily know what the next thing would look like, but I knew consciously that I was ready as as you've read to burn everything mm. to to make I think there's a line where I say I would be the fire starter. I was yeah. I I knew that. So the Ocean Thief, which was the boat I went out on, was the making of me. Absolutely it was in many, many ways. 
So it did provide a new story for me, but just not in the way I thought it would. That is so often, that's how life works, right? So how did, how did you think it would? What I thought was that I would go out and I would have this very glamorous, I don't know where, I, why, how I thought it was glamorous. Before I went out on the Ocean Thief, I'd um, tried to get a job as a cook on a really, really, really beautiful yacht, an extraordinarily beautiful yacht. And I didn't get that job. So, But somehow in my head, I had this idea that the Ocean Thief would be like that. I'd be sort of swanning around. Um, and then I'd finish, you know, I don't know, I didn't think about what the work would be like. I'd finish, I'd have a load of money and my life would begin. But really my life began on the boat. And it was the building of phys it was hard, hard physical work. Mm. And there is a great consolation, as I've said, in physical work. There is a great sort of joy in building muscle. So the things that really happened were in that few months on board that boat, I was removed from the world. So I was kind of literally cut adrift and that provides opportunities. It provides the opportunity to rethink everything you thought you knew about yourself, about the world. And, you know, that's kind of an experience that some of us are echoing right now with, with the, the things that have been happening in the last um, 18 months or so. So that provided an opportunity. The second one was this having to become physically heroic. So I was in danger a lot on that boat. Mm. There are some hair-raising stories of, of what you did. <laughs> so before I went out on that boat, now I, I was never in danger, I will say, from the men on board with me. I was on, in danger mm. from the natural world and from physical mm. disaster. So that meant that my crewmates relied on me. I had to become strong. I had to become capable and I had to become heroic. So that was the thing that made me. As it turned out, when we um, stepped off, <laughs> when we stepped off the Ocean Thief, um, it had been a disastrous season. There had been theft, there had been betrayal, there had been storms and disaster. So not only did I not have my promised $10,000, I had nothing. I had mm. no money. In fact, I owed the, um, the company money. <laughs> Catherine, uh, I see that sadly we've only got a short time left. I want to move you to, to talk about something which is a very important um, feature of the book, slightly given away by the title, and that is female anger. So we don't have time to talk as much as I would have liked to about this, but I just wanted to ask you about this. You talk throughout the book at various times about the shame that you feel, shame that you feel after you're assaulted, shame that you feel in the police station, shame that you feel on other occasions when men have behaved badly. Why do you think your experience clearly isn't unique? Why do you think it's so often that it's the female victim who feels the shame for the wrongdoing by the male perpetrator? And how can we change that? Well, I think part of changing that is, as you say, female anger. And I was really careful to use the word fury because I think fury is an animating force. It's not random, you know, it's not scattered. So it is angry, but it's sharp and it's powerful and it can be very, very clear. So I, I kind of think that shame and depression and stuckness, all of those things actually often 
connect to not speaking. They connect to not owning the feelings or taking the feelings into oneself. Expressing, so I think that there are two things. One is owning and expressing that fury like a sword that actually this belongs not in me. This belongs with the perpetrator. But the other crucial thing, and we've seen it happen over the last few years, is women speaking. Silence breeds shame. And speaking, therefore, removes the capacity of shame to um, destroy us. So when we speak out and we speak to each other and we start to kind of map the pieces together, and then we start to be able to go, okay, now we're seeing a whole picture. Mm. And guess what? It's not just me. This is a whole, <laughs> this is a cultural problem and we can unite and use our swords of fury to slice it up into pieces and make something new from it. So the, there's a couple of descriptions early in the book where beautiful descriptions where we see your fury escape and we see you fighting back couple of examples when you speak to that dreadful policeman you I won't go into detail what you said but you your anger flares up and you respond to him in a sharp way when the defense barrister is cross-examining you in the trial the same again we see after you've been beaten around you fight back and I wanted to ask you how did that feel was that empowering is that what you're talking about Absolutely. And I think what I realise actually really only now, only after writing this book, is that I that was there as a young child. You know, there's a moment early on in, in, in this book, I describe biting people. Mm. Uh, so I think that kind of spikiness, that sharpness and the kind of vivacity, I had that. And then kind of, you know, the, the sort of adolescent years where girls, or certainly in my case, are sort of bombarded by a set of expectations and um, it was a bit sucked out of me. So in those moments, it wasn't like I'd found something. It was more like I'd reclaimed something that was in me already. I'd let it out. It was waiting. And, you know, it it was, it didn't, as I say there, it didn't change the outcome of the trial, but it was a moment of me really clearly saying to myself, I've got you, mm. I'm backing you. It doesn't matter if anyone else is because I'm here, which I guess is kind of me now saying that to my young self. I've got you. I'm here. Look what we've made. <laughs> Catherine, this is my final question. You've said that writing Fury, we've talked, we haven't talked as much as I would have liked to, but we have talked a lot about this whole concept of transformation and reinvention. And that was what this four months on the trawler did to you. You stepped on as one person, KC, and you stepped off as another, Catherine. Mm -hmm. And this is what you've said. Um, you said in an interview, um, a written interview, I think it was, that writing Fury, this memoir, was a kind of synthesis for you, where you brought together the person you were before you stepped onto the ocean thief, that's Casey, and the person you were when you stepped off it four months later as Catherine. Could you talk a little bit about that, about how writing Fury has brought about that synthesis, about the person mm -hmm. that you were before and the person that you were after? Absolutely. I think before I wrote Fury, I, I mean, I was called KC before I got on that boat. I did have a different name, which is a kind of gift for a memoirist, really, because I could create this sense of it's, a, it's another person. But also because in my life since then, I'd, I, I rarely spoke of it. 
Um, I had a very, and when I did, I would say things to people like, I was a completely different person then. You have no idea. So I really had built that sense into myself. It was necessary to, you know, in, in when I'm teaching writing, I often talk about crossing thresholds, you know, and it was necessary in my story of myself to create this threshold. That was then and it's gone. I've I've burnt it. But you of course shedding your skin like a snake. I love it. that expression. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, shaking the dust from your feet which is a biblical image but I absolutely had all of those images playing out in the life and the self that I made so writing fury was an opportunity to go back to that self and bring her and that story closer and go you know what you made what I am now you made what became possible you were the groundwork and we're the same person so it as as you said it became a really lovely synthesis and and a yeah a way of becoming properly whole Catherine thank you so much for speaking to us to all of us today Thank you, everybody who's listening, for supporting the Yayasan Mudraswari Saraswati, I hope I haven't butchered that pronunciation, patrons program, and to all of the festival's partners who've made the Ubud Writer and Readers Festival possible. Please do follow at Ubud Writers Festival on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, or visit the website ubudwritersfestival.com for more information about the program. Thank you so much for having me and it's been just an absolute pleasure to talk to Catherine about her fabulous book.